0: Uh, Hello, uh, everybody in MAFRA. um, It's good to be with you, uh, slightly different way. Uh, It's a bit strange, um, but it's the next best thing to being together. So um, uh, let's pray and then we'll uh, consider God's word. Loving Heavenly Father, we uh, give you thanks that uh, we have this modern technology that enables us to to gather around your word and to feed on your word, uh, even though we're uh, separated by distance and uh, legislation. Uh, we do pray for the day when we'll be able to gather together together again and we ask that you would speed that day but until then help us to remain faithful help us to remain committed to uh, to engaging with your word to hearing it and uh, believing it and so we pray that you would help us to be faithful today as we come again to the prophet Isaiah please speak to us through it uh, words which um, uh, teach us and uh, rebuke us and and correct us and train us in righteousness uh and may all these things be done for the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last time I was with you, we began a series on the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a difficult book. And uh, one of the challenges of preaching Isaiah at all um, is uh, to hold it all together. Uh, there's 66 chapters. It's, uh, um, it's, it's the second longest book in the whole Bible uh, uh, by, by chapter. Uh, But it's important because it's uh, the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And so therefore to ignore it means that we're missing out on so much, as we spoke about last time. But uh, one of the challenges of preaching it, and even if we were to do it every week, is holding it all together to the point where we're able to get some consistency. Well, that's even more difficult when you preach it about once a month. So just a reminder, in in chapter 1 of Isaiah, uh, so far we've seen that... um, the Jerusalem which is the main focus of the prophets attention he's operating in Judah and Jerusalem and he speaks on Yahweh's behalf Yahweh that that's the, the name the personal name of God uh, which we often see um, hidden in our English Bibles as Lord written in capital letters but it stands for the personal name of God the name by which God revealed himself to to Moses and to to Israel and um, this, this people that's been purchased by God Saved by God Rescued by God from slavery And, and put in Jerusalem to live uh, They've become decadent in their religion They've become um, half-hearted Perhaps not even half-hearted uh, but, but they've become decadent And so Yahweh speaks to them and against them To the voice of his prophet And so in Isaiah chapter 1 at verse 2 Yahweh begins an indictment. It's as though he's prosecuting them in a court of law. And uh, Israel has broken its covenant with him, and so Yahweh addresses them through the prophet in these words He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, Uh, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so we see that they've rebelled against Yahweh politically. They've refused to be his people. And so in verse 4 we read, Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So they've, they've given up on the God that rescued and saved them. Uh, and so that political rebellion... Also manifests itself in re- religious rebellion. Their their religion is formal; it's heartless. They they're good at getting the, the the business of it right, the sacrifices and the prayers, but they don't really mean it. They're hypocrites. Well, at the end of the uh, the, the first section that we looked at last time, in uh, in verses eighteen to twenty, uh, Yahweh offers forgiveness, uh, but this forgiveness is entirely conditional on heartfelt repentance. And so in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's the the choice that faces Jerusalem, the choice that faces uh, uh, Judah. Uh, If they're willing and obedient, they shall eat. Uh, They'll continue to live in the land that God has given them uh, and they'll eat the good of the land. They'll be well looked after. But that's if they're willing and obedient. But if they refuse God, if they turn their back on his restatement of his promises through the prophet Isaiah, they'll be eaten. So there's the choice, eat. Or be eaten. Well, as we get to uh, the later part of chapter one and as we move into chapter two, uh, we find that uh, God resumes his indictment, this legal challenge against Israel's social rebellion. And so let's pick it up now at uh, chapter one, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares... The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together, with none to quench them. So, what we got in the first section there, between verses twenty-one to twenty-six, is a, a picture of Jerusalem: uh, their faithful past, their rebellious present, and a righteous and glorious future. Notice how verse twenty-one begins: "How." The faithful city has become a whore. Now, th- that's commonly used in in lament uh, literature in the Psalm, in, in the Old Testament uh, to say how uh, th- that's the way laments begin. It's the way the Book of Lamentations begin. It's a it's a, a, a registering by the uh, the author that what we're hearing here is very very sad. Uh, the city that was once characterized by faithfulness to Yahweh is now the Extreme of unfaithfulness. Now, this is very unflattering language for the people of God. But Yahweh says that faithful city has become a whore. The city is as good as a prostitute. Now, that's the very opposite of faithfulness. It's a picture of someone who's given up on their promises, someone who's turned their back on uh, on their husband. It's a picture from marriage, uh, they're the complete reverse of everything that they should be. Now, later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 54, we read that uh, their maker is their husband. So this is an image of, of marital unfaithfulness. Uh, in Exodus 34, uh, Yahweh says to Israel, who he saved from Egypt, that he's a jealous God. That's the language of, of a husband. Uh, it, it's someone who, who wants uh, untarnished loyalty from, uh, from their wife. Uh, And that the problem with Israel that that God was forecasting in Exodus 34 is if they gave themselves to the nations around them, that they would whore after their gods. And that's exactly what's happened in Jerusalem of Isaiah's day. Now, jealousy is an attribute which is really only appropriate to an exclusive covenant relationship. Uh, And so what Israel, what Judah has done here is that they've breached that exclusive commitment. They, They should have been committed to Yahweh alone and the fact that they've given their hearts to other gods is prostitution. So Yahweh talks about how uh, the, the city was once full of justice. It was once full of righteousness. And you will often find those words paired throughout the book of Isaiah, justice and righteousness. Justice means to exercise the program of government, the processes of government in sound judgment, and administration, we all of us want justice, don't we? Uh, That's the kind of world we want to live in. We we all of us know when an injustice has been done to us and we feel it keenly, Um, but really we want a world where injustice has been done away with. Well, injustice can only be done away with in a world committed to righteousness. Now, righteousness means um, commitment, conformity to an ethical or moral standard. It means the quality of being right, Uh, people who conform to standards set out by the holy and righteous God. Um, A righteous person is someone who is committed not only to living for God at an individual level, uh, certainly that's important, but much broader than that is the desire of the righteous person to see that the community fulfills those same commands of God. It's a desire to see other people built up in the ways of God and by looking out for personal righteousness but community righteousness and wanting truly what is good for others, that is uh, the way we, in which God is properly served. But what's happening in Jerusalem in the day of Isaiah is they have spiritual unrighteousness. And uh, and so this that, that leads to physical injustice, which is characterised by murder. Uh, righteousness lodged in her, that's the, the previous Jerusalem, but now murderers find a haven there. And so in verse 22, uh, Yahweh goes on. He's looked at the, uh, the, the Jerusalem of old and he's talked a bit about how it is now, but he characterises the Jerusalem of the present. Your silver has become dross. Uh, dross was what should have been refined out of the silver, but now there's nothing of worth in the silver, he says. Uh, silver was a precious metal. Now he's saying of his people, there's very little that's precious left. He goes on and he says, your best wine has been mixed with water. To cut wine with water means to to pollute it. It means to degrade it. It means to rob it of its quality and sweetness. It's been weakened to the point of being worthless. So the silver's worthless. The wine is tasteless. This is the spiritual quality of Jerusalem. Uh, It means that they're not at all what they should be. In verse 23, the, the indictment continues, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. The, uh, the leaders that uh, are leading Jerusalem at that day have been corrupted uh, and they've been compromised by that corruption. Their friends are the people that they should be judging. They're in league with criminals. They're in league with lovers of bribes. Now, a bribe was a terrible thing. It was condemned in Old Testament faith. In Exodus verse, chapter 18, um, God told them they needed to look for leaders who, who would be able to lead, uh, people who feared God and who, who rejected bribes. Um, But in Exodus 23, God makes it very clear. He says, you shall take no bribe, for a a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now, God wants righteousness from his people, and his people will only be righteous if they're well led, led by people that are righteous themselves. But people who go after bribes are anything but righteous, and their judgment will be clouded, their judgment will be uh, corrupted. So a bribe was a very symbol of lax government, of everything that Yahweh was against. Uh, So they're after bribes, they're friends of criminals, and yet they're turning their back on the things that God says make for true religion. And so he says that uh, they do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Now we've already seen earlier in in chapter 1, over in verse uh, 17, uh, when God says to them to return, the kind of religion that he wants them to return to is uh, to learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's what Yahweh expects from his people. Now, uh, the fatherless and the widow are symbols of the vulnerable, people that lack the means to care for themselves. Uh, so the lead, this is a picture of a complete failure of leadership the leadership is feathering its own nest, looking after their own needs, and they're ignoring the needs of the people that actually need justice, that require righteous leadership. See, God's righteousness is always expressed in caring for the people that he cares for, especially for those who lack the means to care for themselves. And, and that's a feature of Old Testament faith. Uh, biblical leadership, right from beginning to end, is characterised by people Who serve not their own interests, but others. Now this is uh, brought into very clear relief. It's it's a very clear idea that comes through in the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And so, if you were to look in Luke chapter twenty-two, you'll find there that a dispute a dispute arose amongst his disciples. After all the time that Jesus has been with them, this is the night before he goes to the cross, and the 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 disciples are still arguing about who's the greatest. and so Luke 22 at verse 25, he says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. So the, the, the kings of the Gentiles are known for pushing other people around. But in verse 26 of Luke 22, Jesus is not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And then he pulls the whole thing together. And he says, I am among you as the one who serves. So what should leaders be? The whole testimony of the Bible tells us that leaders need to be humble and leaders need to be characterised by a willingness to serve those who are vulnerable. And so that's the standard that Yahweh, through the prophet Isaiah, calls his people in Jerusalem to. But it's the standard that we're called to as well. And, and any that take up the mantle of Christian leadership, need to be known not by their belligerence or their ability to get their own way. They should certainly never be known for the ability to feather their own nest or seek personal advancement. God's leaders, the leaders that God wants, are people who serve and people who put the needs of others ahead of their own. But Isaiah 1 verse 24, the prophet makes it very clear who these rebels are dealing with and so look at it there therefore the lord declares that's a strong word he's speaking with with great force here now just in case we haven't picked up who is speaking he's the lord of hosts he's the mighty one of israel so to call him lord means to say that he's an unchallengeable omnipotent completely powerful ruler but to call him Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, well, that's a, a title that Isaiah uses 62 times. Uh, it's a favourite phrase of his. It's a favourite description of God. He uses it more than any other uh, writer in the Bible. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, that means he's the supremely glorious commander of heaven's armies. I mean, who'd want to take on a fight with the leader of all of heaven's armies? And yet that's what the, the people of Jerusalem are doing. Um Because he's the the leader of heaven's armies, by definition, he's supreme over all the earth. He's not just some local god who, who, who is worshipped by some tribe here or there. He is the god of the whole earth. But that's not enough. So Isaiah calls him the mighty one of Israel. He's Israel's god. He's the one who's proved himself in battle previously against Israel's enemies. But now, who are his enemies? His own people. And so he says, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Now that, friends, is is a stunning thing to hear and and to get uh, to grips with. Uh, It's a very powerful, emphatic statement. But Yahweh says he's going to get relief. That means he's going to derive comfort, a restoration of the way things ought to be from him dealing with his enemies. But wait, I hear you say. Aren't these his chosen people, his treasured possession, as we've been told in Deuteronomy chapter 7? Well, that's true. God did choose them, and they are his treasured possession. But it's just they need to live as though they are. And when they oppress the vulnerable, they've become his enemy. Because to be one of God's people means to live God's way. But to live the way of the world, to live the way of the nations, is to take the side of his enemies. And God will not leave unchallenged that kind of opposition. And so in verse 25, he says, I will turn my hand against you. Now, to have God's hand turned against you is is a terrible uh, thing to to, to contemplate. Uh, God has rescued Israel with an outstretched hand. We read of that in Deuteronomy 4 and Psalm 136. So it's a hand of strength when it comes to save, but it's a hand of terrible punishment when it's turned against people who have become his enemies. But God's punishment is never purposeless and it's never only for the sake of vindictiveness. God's punishment is always aimed at restoring his people. That is his desire. It's not his desire that any should perish, but that should all all should turn from their, their wickedness and return to him. And so the end of verse 25 we find the the purpose of his punishment, and that is to smelt away their dross, as with lye, and remove all your alloy. He's using a figure that comes from uh, processes of refining precious metals. You heat them and then you scrape off all of the impurity so that you're left with pure and precious metal after the process is complete. Yahweh says he will punish his people, but for the sake of restoring them and for purifying them. Now what's being spoken of in in verse 26 when he says I will restore your judges at the first is a picture of the process that takes place once that impurity has been removed. Uh, He says I'll restore your judges at the first. What does at the first mean? Well it means from back when Jerusalem was a faithful city. And what does that mean? Well it means back in the days when David was king. David, the king that they all look back to as being the very best of their rulers, the one who established safety for Jerusalem, the one who established the territory of Jerusalem, the one who rescued them from all of the enemies that were around about. Yahweh takes them back in time to their legendary past. He says, I will restore your judges at the first and your counsellors at the beginning. He says, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So he's taking us all the way back to the beginning of our reading. Once they were called a faithful city, known for its righteousness, they will be again. That process will be restored. How will it be restored? Because Yahweh has made promises to the great King David. These are so important for understanding the whole Bible. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, God promised uh, David that he would never lack a descendant on the throne, that he would have a descendant who would rule eternally. And so Israel was waiting for that descendant of David who would come and establish Yahweh's rule on the earth and they believed that he would keep his promises. But that didn't mean they could be lax about being obedient while they waited for him to fulfil those promises. And so this idea of the restoration of judges as at the first, a restoration to the era of David, is a signpost to things that will come to pass later on In the book of Isaiah, Uh, Isaiah is the book that speaks of um, the king in the line of David in chapter 11. And then in in, uh, chapter uh, uh, 52 and 53, it speaks of a servant uh, who will enable the fulfillment of all the Davidic promises. So chapter 1 verse 21 looks back to better days, uh, model days. Chapter 1 verse 26, look ahead to Yahweh's restoration of justice and righteousness and Jerusalem's reputation as the faithful city. So the question then is how will all of this be accomplished? We've seen that the choice before them is to eat or be eaten, to be faithful and to enjoy the good of the land or to continue in rebellion and find that those those prospects are taken from them. But in chapters 21 we've Chapter 1, verse 21 to 26, the, the choice is put in these terms, to be refined or to burn. Yahweh's aim, says Barry Webb, the Australian commentator, is their purification, not their annihilation. And so verses 27 to 31 put those choices in very clear perspective. They can repent and be redeemed or continue in rebellion and be destroyed. So verse 27 says that Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. There's the way ahead. There's there's the path. That's what needs to happen. But verse 28 gives a very strong contrast. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Despite everything that they've done, despite the fact that they completely deserve God's punishment because of their rebellion, their hard-heartedness, their hypocrisy, their maltreatment of the vulnerable, all of these things are offensive to God. They've made them his enemies as a result of it. But Yahweh has plans for Zion and he won't abandon her. Uh, Yahweh always keeps his promises. But those promises are for people who will repent. Those promises are not for people who will continue in rebellion. And so people need to respond. You see, God's action in salvation always requires a response. It's not something that we can take complacently. Uh, It requires a response of our will, and that's the way to achieve Yahweh's purpose. So in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, put it this way. Uh, the response to the salvation that Yahweh has won for us through the Lord Jesus is to put to death what is earthly in you. And there's a whole list of things that qualify as earthly and that need to be put to death. But as uh, Paul finishes this little section in verse 10, he says, once we've put to death those things, we need to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Yahweh's purpose is never just to punish, it's always to refine and to restore. And even then, that that purpose is to, to rebuild people in the image of our Creator, to be what humans were once made to be and which sin has marred so dreadfully. But getting back to Isaiah chapter 1, uh, at verse 28, those who continue to rebel will be punished severely. Uh, so they're rebels, they're sinners, they'll be broken, they'll be shattered and they'll be consumed. In other words, they'll come to an end. So there's the choice. Now, the parallels in verse 29 reveal the true state of their hearts, where they thought that their religion was good enough because they were turning up when they needed to and doing the sacrifices that they thought God required and coming to him in prayer, so so to speak. Uh, we find in, in verse 29, uh, they shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desired. So the things that they desired were not Yahweh's way. They weren't God's rules and God's commandments. They weren't God's true faith. They wanted a bit both ways. They wanted the religion of the world around them, the sensual, exciting, exotic idolatry of the people around, amongst whom they lived. That was what they'd set their heart on. That was what they desired. But God says the thing that they desired will lead to their shame. The choices that they've made will lead to utter humiliation. Now what we see here is garden imagery. Verse 30 says that they'll be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. So uh, tree imagery is important here because very often uh, the practice of idol worship took place in uh, in pleasant sacred groves, groves of, of, of trees that were planted as symbols of fertility. And the, the, the gods of the nations around about Israel uh, practised this fertility religion. Baal was a, a fertile, uh, a fertility god. Uh, Asherah, his wife, symbolised fertility. They thought if they wanted their crops to survive, if they wanted their crops to prosper, they'd need to pay a little bit of attention to the gods of the nations around them because they, they were fertility gods. Well, God says, no, you can only have one god. Have no other gods before me. And so where they'd set their hearts on these symbols of fertility god says that will be completely frustrated um the the uh, the trees that they're worshiping amongst the trees that they've set their hearts on will wither they'll be like gardens without water but more than that they'll be burned up they'll be so lacking in water that they just uh, they become tinder for the fire and so verse 31 has a striking image of the of terror and finality a dead garden is burned. And so the choice facing Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah couldn't be starker. Uh, The fire that burns will either refine them or consume them. We'll say it again. There's only two ways to live. They can eat or be eaten. They can be refined or they can burn. But then we move to chapter 2. And chapter 2, 1 to 5 as a, a picture of an alternative future. And so we find there, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob Of the Lord. So the rest of the book of Isaiah is aiming to undo, to reverse and restore the picture that we've seen in chapter one, the uh, the politically compromised, the religiously hypocritical, the socially immoral people of Jerusalem. That is all going to be restored in the Zion of the future. Now Zion was the place, it was the mountain on which uh, the city of Jerusalem was built. It's a symbol for God living among his people. He told his people back in Deuteronomy 12 that they were to wait until he made it obvious to them where he would make his name to dwell. And so uh, Psalm 132 verses 13 to 14 uh, says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Zion was a symbol of security. It was a symbol of peace. It was the place where God lived among his chosen people. Now, one of the the things that happened as a result of that was people thought they could live as they pleased because God would never quit where he lived. What they didn't understand was for him to remain living with them, they had to maintain faithfulness to his covenant law. Now, Isaiah says here that it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, latter days is an Old Testament way of saying, after this. We say to people, uh, see you later. Uh, I had a dear old friend, I'd say, see you, see you later, Nan. And, and she'd say to me, how much later, Steve? And uh, see you later just means sometime in the future. That's what latter days means. It means after this. It means some time in the future, which is not specific. It's indeterminate, but it will happen. So uh, Isaiah says, it shall, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the lord that is mount zion shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills now that doesn't mean that at some point in in uh, in the future that mount zion will be taller than mount everest it doesn't mean that at all this is a figure of speech which means it will be the greatest mountain on earth it will be the one that is uh, deemed by the the whole of the earth's establishment to uh, the whole of the earth's people to have been established as the the preeminent mountain of all, number one mountain. And so what will happen in that day is that the nations will flow to it. The end of verse 2, there will be a stream of people flowing to Mount Zion. A river will flow uphill, but it won't be a river of water. It will be a river of people. And these will not be Jewish people. They'll be people from the nations, that is, the Gentiles. So the world will one day be attracted to this wonderful Zion and there'll be this magnetic force drawing them there and that magnetic force will be the law of Yahweh. Now, we don't need to think of law in terms of just punitive sanctions that governments give us to keep us from going outside during periods of coronavirus, Now, that's not what the law is. The law is a way of life. It's a way of instruction given by a good God for the protection and the benefit of the people that have come under his sovereign rule. And there will come a day, says Isaiah, when the whole world will see that the rule of Yahweh, which has been the privilege of Israel, is something that they want to join in as well. So verse 3 speaks of the nations gathering to receive Yahweh's law, his word. Israel's rejecting it at the moment. There'll come a day when the whole world will want it. And so verse 4 speaks of a wonderful future of peace. Look at these words. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that a future that you'd like? a future without war, a future without conflict. Uh, There'll be no disputes. They're the origins of wars when countries don't like each other and argue about things. There'll be no need for weapons. And so what weapons remain will be turned into agricultural implements for farming in what must be a new Eden. There'll be no need for military training. They won't have to teach their young people how to fight anymore. This is the future for those who repent. And return to the law of Yahweh. Now they're the things which are expanded on later on in the book of Isaiah. In the first 39 chapters we find that Jerusalem is very vulnerable. But we're told throughout that Zion will survive. And so there is a future of peace for all who will heed God's word. But Zion's trouble that Isaiah has made very clear here is a challenge for us as well. Because we're God's people. We're people that have been called and chosen. We're people that have been rescued, redeemed, and saved. And so we've inherited these promises. But we too can lapse into complacency. We too can treat less than seriously the things that God requires as proper responses to the salvation that He's given us through the Lord Jesus. Now, in 1945, the Second World War came to an end and there was a deep desire around the world, in all of the countries that had fought, many of which were now ruined, for a future that would include no more war. The 20th century saw two terrible international wars. The First World War was called the War to End All Wars and it didn't and people were terribly disappointed when the Second World War came around. The world wanted peace. How to find it? Well, they established in New York City the United Nations. Now, if you were to go to New York City in Ralph Bunch Park, uh, it's a little park just across the road from the United Nations headquarters, there's a granite staircase there in the corner of the park. It was built in 1948 and dedicated, and it's become known as Isaiah's Wall because on it, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, is inscribed in the granite. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah 2 verse 4 is quoted on the wall opposite the United Nations building as the wish of the nations for a future of peace. Well, how are we doing? How's the United Nations traveling? Have they given us that peace that deep down we all wish for? How will that peace ever come? Well, it can't come so long as the nations of the world continue to refuse and reject the law of Yahweh, the world's only God. And so in chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah, as we finish this reading, he makes this appeal to the people of Jerusalem. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the answer. That's the way to the future of peace, to return to the law of the Lord, to return to his ways which have now been fulfilled and perfectly expressed in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We need to walk in the light of the law of Yahweh. And so we see that the nations will be drawn to walk in his paths as God's people walk in the light. The nations say, come, let us go to Zion. Isaiah says, come, let us walk. As God's people, we need to walk in the light of the Lord Jesus to make the gospel message that we've come to believe attractive to others so that they'll want to join us. So how will the rebellious, unfaithful Zion of chapter 1 become the Zion of chapter 2? It'll come through refinement, refinement that will either consume that the fire will either consume or will refine. It will also come, as Isaiah shows us later, through the activity of Emmanuel, God with us, uh, through the king who will rule in the line of David. But all of those figures find fulfillment and they're tied together in one that is revealed later in Isaiah as Yahweh's servant, whose sufferings and sin bearing make other people righteous. And the New Testament leaves us in no doubt at all that that servant of Isaiah is the Lord Jesus. So what's the way to the future of peace? How can we walk in the light of the Lord? We need to come to the Lord Jesus. We need to admit that we're sinners and seek the forgiveness that he died to win for us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Gentiles. They've been made one with the ancient people of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Continuing in Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, He himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, anybody that comes to God through him will find that Jesus has created in himself one new man in place of the two, and he's made peace. And all of this, according to verse 16, was so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. The peace that we all deeply desire, the peace that the world wants, can only be found with a complete, heartfelt, 100% returning to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the fulfilment of all that Isaiah saw. Zion will be rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt under a king who reigns in the line of David, who brings perfect peace The king who is the servant, the king who is the one who shed his blood so that people like us could be forgiven and made fit to live with Yahweh forever. For those who return and repent, there's peace. But Isaiah 48 and 57 make it clear there's no peace for the wicked. So where are you this morning? Uh, or whenever it is that you're listening. Are you a person who has come to God through the Lord Jesus? Have you quit your rebellion, your attempts at religion? Have you come with your whole heart and turned from your old way of life, put it to death, so that you in Christ can be renewed in the image of your creator? We all of us need to lay down our arms. If we want a future of peace, there's only one way to find it, and that's in the light of the law of the Lord, as expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are challenging words. They're ancient words, but they speak to our hearts today. Uh, We're people who find it ever so easy to go things our own way, and yet we want the peace that your word promises. Uh, We long for the day when you will rebuild Zion, when you will dwell eternally among your redeemed people. So please help us to live according to the values of your kingdom even now. Help us to put to death what is earthly in us. Help us to live lives of righteousness inspired by your Holy Spirit and all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who shed his blood so that we could know peace with you. Heavenly Father, please help us to take these things to heart. We pray that you would grant us grace to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.